be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 2. And uh, this morning we're going to be finishing up the first cycle in Micah. Micah can roughly be broken up into three repeating cycles. Each cycle is characterized by a warning, a judgment, and then hope. And so this morning we have uh, come to the end of chapter two, and in the first two chapters, we're not left with a particularly pretty picture. We have seen God's people abandon him for idolatry, covetousness, and theft, and the people who should be calling this out are not. The people are corrupt, and the preachers are cowards and self-interested charlatans. So Micah steps into this and calls this out. He tells them that God is bringing charges against them and standing as a witness against them because they have turned from him. And because of this, they will be taken away into captivity. They will be taken from their lands and those lands will be occupied by others. And so, so far in Micah, the outlook has not, has been pretty bleak and before we jump into the text this morning, I actually want to address that because I'm not unaware of that. And I think that we need to let the heavy stuff sit and impact us the way that God's word presents it. Because without that sitting and impacting, the text this morning falls flat or flatter, we might say. Unless we have sat in the heavy stuff, the encouraging stuff is not really encouraging. We as Americans are very quick to move on to the stuff we would like to hear, the stuff that we will see today. But we do ourselves a disservice by not letting the weight of God's holiness and the seriousness of sin and the consequence of rebellion against God fall on us and and not feel it. So we've spent the last two weeks in the first two chapters of Micah, and there have been some difficult things that Micah has said, and we should let that fall on us with the appropriate weight and self-reflection, because without that, what we will see today loses some of its beauty and some of its effect. It's kind of like if you're told that you're cancer-free, but you've never been diagnosed with cancer, right? Like, you don't have cancer. Oh, great. Well, that really wasn't a worry of mine. I kind of knew I didn't have cancer. It's just a regular checkup, you know, thanks doc, you know. But if you get the diagnosis of, we saw the scans, you have cancer. It's eating away at your organs and and you're likely to die. And you hear that you're cancer free. It's a a different feeling. The the waking up from the surgery saying, hey, the, the transplant worked, you're good versus Hey, you don't need a transplant. Everything's working fine. Oh, okay. They're both good news, but one feels, and you feel the weight of it a lot more when you've experienced the other side of that. And in verses 12 and 13 of Micah chapter 2, Micah abruptly transitions, and in these two powerful verses, he tells the people that God's judgment is not the last word. God's discipline is not the last word. Their sin and their rebellion is not the last word. God's grace and his faithfulness has the last word, and that is where hope is found. So hope is not found in where the false preachers Micah mentioned last week offer. It's not, uh, it's not found in platitudes. 
It's not found in uh, peace, peace when there is no peace. It's not found in wine and strong drink. Hey, everything's going great. God, everything's fine. Just keep on the path that you're on. Everything's good. Hope is found in confronting the reality of sin and hearing the sweet promise that God will act on behalf of his people for his glory and for their good. Hope is found in giving appropriate attention to the condition of our hearts in a way that drives us to the surgeon that can heal them. And in fact, the only way we can actually have true hope, the kind that the Bible wants us to have, is to divest ourselves from any and all human-oriented, self-saving efforts and hopes and see our ongoing and desperate need for God in our lives to act on our behalf and then hear and trust the precious promises that he will come through on our behalf. So grace has the last word. And as we end this first cycle, we end it with a positive message. But it's this godly positivity that stands in contrast with the worldly positivity that the false teachers last week offered. It's a positivity of substance that can sustain us rather than a positivity of self-aggrandizement or false hope that we could ignore God and walk in rebellion and everything will be fine. So the first cycle of Micah ends with a promise that God will act as the shepherd king on behalf of his people. And that's the point of this text. God will act as a shepherd king on behalf of his people. So with that in mind, this is the word of the Lord from Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. This is the word that the Lord has for us this morning. Father, we pray and ask that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds through your word. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and teach us from your word for it is good and delightful to those who love you and walk uprightly before you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing we see in this text is in verse 12. And that is the promise of a shepherd. We see it very clearly. I will assemble you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. So the shepherd, who is God, is gathering the sheep. So the shepherd gathers. And what does it mean to gather? If you go back to Isaiah chapter 10, verse, or I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, we get Isaiah talking about the same type of thing. Isaiah says this, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. That's the picture of this gathering shepherd. There is a shepherd who is over his sheep, and he gathers them together. But the way that he gathers them is significant. Notice he doesn't like, 
we'll come to this in a minute, but sheep are kind of dumb, right? So they kind of wander off. He's not like beating on them. He's not irritated with them. He's not treating them as if they're goats or wolves. He actually gathers them in a very particular way. He gathers them lovingly. He gathers them with great care. He gathers them with compassion. He picks them up and he carries them and he holds them to his bosom. And that is the type of gathering that our Lord does, that our shepherd does. He gathers his sheep as a loving shepherd. He gathers his sheep not as a hireling, but as one who owns the flock. In the New Testament, we see the same type of terminology in John chapter 10, verse 25, where Jesus answered them. He said, I told you and you did not believe the uh, works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and not one will be snatched out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So this gathering of the sheep comes through hearing the voice of the shepherd. The shepherd calls the sheep to himself. The shepherd cares for the sheep. He pursues the sheep. He goes after the sheep. He goes slowly so that those sheep that are with young can keep up. And he calls them to himself. This gathering that happens is a result of the fact that as Isaiah 56 or 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray, each into his own way. We are, we are prone to wander, we are prone to scatter, and so we need a shepherd who will gather us together and who gathers us in this way. We all go our own way. And he brings us to this place of feeding. And in context, this means that God will gather his people out of exile one day. See, the hope is found in the fact that this judgment is not permanent and this discipline of God is not the final word, that one day it will end and they will be gathered together as a people again. They will go into exile, but not forever. And a day will come in the future when God will gather those faithful Israelites together again out of the exile. So this is a shepherd who gathers, but this promised shepherd is also a shepherd that has a flock. And in this context, in verse 12, he says, I will gather the remnant of Israel. So we see this remnant mentioned. The theme of remnant is an important phrase to these pre-exilic prophets. The faithful remnant are identified as the true people of God. We see this clearly in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 9, we see that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of Ab- are children of Abraham because they are descended from Abraham. It is those who have the faith of Abraham that are Abraham's true children. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is lamenting that he thinks he is the only one who is left who is faithful to God and has not bowed the knee to Baal. And God speaks to him in verse 18 and says that he has reserved for himself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So this remnant is people, covenant people of God who remain faithful 
throughout the exile. People like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and, and Esther and Mordecai. The remnant are these people that remain faithful throughout the exile. Though the nation is under God's judgment, God is still at work saving and preserving and working among his people. And so if we go back to John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says this, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring there also, or I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And in Micah chapter 12, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. So this goes far beyond just the faithful Israelites. This includes us. This includes Gentiles that come into the people of God, that are adopted into the people of God through having the faith that Abraham had. It's this full, fuller fulfillment. He gathers the remnant and he brings them back to the promised land. But even in that deliverance from exile, he was pointing to something greater that the chief shepherd would do. He's pointing to something. He's, he, this, this flock involves sheep that are not of this fold. And Jesus goes and pursues them and brings them. And there is one flock and one shepherd over them. There's not two flocks. There's one people of God identified as those, Jew and Gentile, who place their faith in the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And all of those people, all of those elect, are brought together by hearing the voice of the shepherd, are gathered into one fold, are brought together in one place, and in, uh, and in Micah, they are called a noisy multitude of men. Jesus Christ came to deliver us from the exile of sin and gather us as Gentiles into the flock of God. He came to make one new man in place of the two. He came to break down the dividing wall of hostility. He gathers all of his sheep into one fold, into one pen, into one church, and makes them one flock. So now there is neither Jew nor Greek, but all are one in Christ. And one day, the faithful elect of God will inherit the whole earth. And we see that it is as a shepherd who gathers his sheep, her sheep, that brings us all together. So we were all at one time in need of being gathered and brought into the flock. We were all separated by sin. One was on the hill of self-conceit and the other on the hill of sexual immorality and others on the hill of pride and others on the hill of theft and lying and the list can go on and on and on. And the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, gathers by calling and going and pursuing and incarnating and becoming a man and being born in a manger and living a perfect life and going to a cross in death and raising from the dead triumphant to call all of his sheep into one fold that there will be one flock and one shepherd over them. And so he gathers us together through the gospel. He deals with our exile and leads us into pasture of his provision and care. As I said before, sheep are notoriously foolish. They're unable to defend themselves. They're notoriously wanderers. They're easily panicked. And if we're honest, this is our spiritual state. 
Charles Spurgeon said, sheep are prone to wander and ready for all sorts of mischief, but they never assist the shepherd in the slightest degree. In this respect, we are all like the silly sheep, yet our good shepherd supplies all the needs, pities all the infirmities, and pardons all the wanderings of his poor wayward flock. So we are all constantly in need of a shepherd. And the hope of the sheep is in the quality and efficacy of the shepherd. He is a faithful shepherd who does not lose one of his sheep, but gathers each one into the fold of his care and provision. And this gathering is characterized by joy rather than foreboding that they must have felt during these first two chapters. A noisy multitude of men. Like, dudes can be loud. Uh, They're not loud at certain events, right? Like, um, if you bring them to a wedding shower or a baby shower, they're going to remain very silent in the corner, lamenting where they are and that they're there. Now, if, if you take me, excuse me, for example, to Fenway Park, and I get to see the Boston Red Sox play, and they're winning, and I'm surrounded by thousands of other Red Sox fans. And there's like a few Yankees fans there, but the, the crowd is jeering the Yankees fans, jeering the Yankees, and cheering on the Red Sox, singing Sweet Caroline in the seventh inning stretch and all the rest. You, that's a noisy multitude of men, right? This is, a, this is a, a flock that is characterized by joy and jubilation and praise and glorification of the shepherd because the shepherd has gathered them together. It's not the bemoaning, the, the, the pity party. It's not the downer because they, they're off on their own in, on this hill that has no food. They have been brought. They've been gathered. They have provision. They are cared for by this great shepherd. And so it is a noisy multitude of men that are joyfully praising where they are and the shepherd that brought them there. So we're all familiar with Psalm 23, right? And we, we can say Psalm 23, some of us, the whole way through. Have you ever just stopped and thought about it from two different perspectives. First of all, we, we kind of get the perspective of David, the perspective of the sheep. He leads me to green pastures. He leads me down beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. I, I, his rod and his staff are a comfort to me. Do you ever read that and find yourself going, man, that be nice to feel that way. It, it seems kind of distant from where I'm at right now. This David guy must have been super spiritual. I'm really struggling with this. The second observation, I think that remedies that, is why does he lead us beside still waters? Why does he restore our soul? Why does he walk us in paths of righteousness? In Psalm 23. For his name's sake, for his glory. You see, the problem is that we get so sidetracked on like, where are the green pastures right now, God? Like, I'm, I'm really wanting green pastures. I'm kind of in a barren desert. Where, like, I don't like walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That's where I feel like I'm at right now. But where is the focus of the sheep? 
in that psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because he's with me. You see, if we ever want to live and experience the joy that we see here, the the multitude of the noisy multitude of men, the, the joy that the writer of Psalm 23 felt when he was writing that, you've got to take your eyes and focus them in the right place, and that's always on the shepherd. The focus here is on the shepherd. I will lead you. I will assemble you. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in a pasture, a noisy multitude of men. God will do it. That's the hope. That's the hope that they have. This shepherd will act on their behalf. This shepherd will lead them. This shepherd will not abandon them. This shepherd will care for his sheep. And he will gather them. Though it seems bleak, and though they don't understand how that's going to happen, it will surely happen. So the first thing we see is this promise of a shepherd. The second thing we see is the promise of a king. In the next verse, we see a different description of God. He is a loving, gathering, caring shepherd, but he is also a powerful and victorious king. Verse 13, he who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. The failure of the rulers to secure and shepherd or and deliver their people will be replaced by a king who opens the breach of exile and leads his people from the enemy cities to a place of safety. As he goes before them, God himself will be their king. He will defeat their enemies. He will liberate the captives. He will break the strongholds. He will lead his people to victory. Now, this certainly has in mind the people returning from exile But that is not all. Spurgeon called the promises of God, quote, perennial springs, forever overflowing with new fulfillments. As we'll see in the coming chapters, Micah's hope went way beyond just coming back from Babylon. Micah's hope went into the future beyond that. After 400 years of silence to a manger in Bethlehem, to a king that came that was born in a stable, he envisioned not merely the return from exile, but a new age where Christ would come and liberate all the captive sheep and rule over them. Micah saw this time as a time when the kingdom of God would break forth into sudden reality and God's people would be manifested. So Micah's theology of the kingdom was similar to Christ where he talked about wheat and tares in Matthew 13, 24 to 30, right? There's wheat and there's tares in the church. And you can't really, you can't, you can't get at the, the tares without messing with some of the wheat. So Jesus says, leave it alone at the last day when it's time for harvest, I'll separate them out, right? We see the separating of the sheep and the goats in Revelation. The true people of God will be manifested and gathered at the final harvest, which is referring to his return. So Micah's perception and his vision went way beyond just a return from exile. 
So while God did break the power of exile and return his covenant people to Jerusalem and their land, there came a day when the true king of Israel burst into history and was born in a humble manger. He preached the good news of the kingdom to repent and believe. He was a suffering servant who went to the cross and bore the sins of his people, breaking the power of sin that exiles us from God. He rose as a victorious king who leads people to triumph and peace. He himself leads us. He is our king. But he is a king who will one day return and deal the final blow to the enemy. So right now, he sits at the right hand of his father as his enemies are made a footstool in Psalm 100, verse 1. That's repeated in the New Testament. And just as the kingdom has broken out now through Christ's first coming and is advancing and taking ground, the day will come when the kingdom will be consummated and encompass the whole earth and Christ will reign among us visibly so there is more coming. Right, what Micah is saying here is not finished. We're in the midst of it. And so there's so much more to look forward to. There's so much more to anticipate. So as we live as subjects of this king who has made the way, who has broken the power of sin, who has brought us into the kingdom and rules over us as a good, gracious, and caring Lord, that's not all there is because there's more ahead. We live in the reality of his kingship now, now, yet it's not fully realized. And so as the Israelites, though things are difficult and we see wickedness all around us and we realize that we are not entirely at home in this country, we have a tremendous hope from this passage because it's not completely fulfilled yet. Like just as the Israelites coming back from exile and, and rebuilding the city didn't completely fulfill this. It, I mean, it fulfilled it in part, but there was more to it. It, it envisioned Christ coming. And, and now that Christ has come, is that it? No, there's more. Christ is returning. So just as the return to Jerusalem was the beginning of greater things that were in store, we also live in the midst of the fulfillment of this promise. And just as the people of Israel had to endure exile in the hope of this being fulfilled, we also live in hope of the return of Christ. Now, it's, it's significant to note that they weren't told how or when this would all happen, and neither are we. The point is to live by faith in the hope of the surety of the promises of God. To live as subjects being led by a powerful and faithful king who will surely fulfill all of his promises. So what does this mean for us? What's the application for us? Three things. First of all, find refuge in God. We tremble in weakness when we face trials. If you think about this, you think about what, what, um, what's going on here in Micah. Was, were everybody, was everybody off the rails? Was everybody evil? Was everybody abandoning God? Was everybody worshiping Baal? No, there was a remnant, right? So the whole nation is being taken off into captivity. What about this remnant? Like, what do they do? Like, man, I've been faithfully worshiping Yahweh this entire time. Why am I being wrapped up into this? And, it, and, and as faithful people of God, we can fall into that same type of despair. We can be, I, I'm, 
I'm following Jesus. I'm seeking to honor him with all of my life. I'm seeking to submit every aspect of my life and my family and, and everything that I have to him. And I'm repenting when I'm recognizing that I'm in the wrong and I'm continuously going back to him. Why is all this bad stuff seem to be happening? We tremble in weakness when we face trials. We face the storms of life and we often face them in a way where we're like, uh, I don't know why this just came to my mind, but like Forrest Gump, when he's got his fishing boat and Lieutenant Dan's up on the, up on the uh, whatever, the big pole, swinging around in the bad storm, yelling at God, is that all you got? Right? How often in trials do we kind of have that mindset? Like we're just like, I'm going to bear into the, into the wind and I'm going to stand my ground. I've got my feet firmly planted and I'm, it's just on me. Rather than it driving us to our knees, driving us to the refuge of God, driving us to deeper dependence upon him. Sometimes these storms come as a result of a fallen and sinful world, and sometimes these storms come as a result of the chastening of God in love to drive us back to him for refuge and security. God's purpose for his people is not to destroy, but to save. And he gathers us that we might remember his goodness and love. We find refuge in him. God is a refuge for his afflicted sheep. And though we might feel as if everything is unraveling around us, we must remember that we are safe in the fold of the great shepherd. In Psalm verse, or chapter 46, it says this. Psalm 46, one to three says this. The Lord is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains may be moved into the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And then in verse 7, it says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Christian, do you flee to Christ for refuge? Do you go to God for refuge? Or are you running around like a chicken with your head cut off over every little thing that happens in this world and every adversity that comes your way? Are you feeling like you have to stand it, you have to weather it, you have to have all the wisdom rather than running to the refuge of Christ and the wisdom of Christ and the comfort of Christ, knowing that he cares for you as your shepherd and will never leave you or forsake you? Because the church has lost its mind recently. Because we're not going back to the refuge, the stronghold of God. The worst thing you can do in times of uncertainty or darkness or doubt is flee from God. When a city is threatened, safety is found inside the walls of the city. When we are discouraged, when things are hard, when we are weak, when we feel as though we are to fail and fall, where do we turn? This passage is calling us to turn to the shepherd. To find our refuge in him, not in the circumstance. Listen, these people are all going to go into exile. All of them. And probably not many of them are going to live to see this fulfilled. Most of them are going to die in exile. So how do you go into exile? And how do you die in exile with hope? It's by finding refuge in God, not in our circumstance 
not in our situation, and certainly not in ourselves. Second point of application is this. God cares for his sheep as a shepherd. So walk by faith in his shepherding care. What was the role of this people? Right? And just do a thought experiment with me. Go back in time. You're in Israel. You're one of the faithful remnant. You're hearing Micah preach this. What's your response? Like, what are you supposed to do with this? Believe it. Like, that's it. Believe it. Actually believe it. Live your life as if you believe it. Like, let it affect how you, you talk and how you act and your attitude and the way you walk. Let it affect how you walk out of Jerusalem and walk into Babylon. Let it affect how you live in Babylon. Let it affect how you raise your children. Let it affect how you go to work. Believe it. Walk by faith in his shepherding care. Endure without walking away from God. Trust his promises and provision. And the same is true of us. We have been given great promises that have not yet been realized and seen come to fulfillment. We live in a sort of exilic existence now. We are sojourners and strangers in this world. We endure and walk by faith, therefore, in the promises God has given us. And we walk in faith that those promises will be realized and fulfilled in the future. In the next world that is our home. So God has not and will not forget his faithful people, the remnant that trust him. And so we must trust him. We must trust in his provision and care. We must trust in his shepherding love. We must trust that we will remain faithful to him, not because we have it in ourselves to do it, but because we have a great shepherd who cares for us in the midst of trial, who feeds our soul, who leads us in paths of righteousness, who will not allow us to go to the left or the right, but will keep us focused in the right direction as he walks with us through the trial. He walks with through the valley of the shadow of death, right? Why can you walk through that and not fear? Because he's with me. You're, he's right there. Right? And some of you that are going through difficult seasons in your life need to hear that Jesus is walking through that with you. He's right there. Do you believe that? Do you trust and walk by faith in his shepherding care? He faithfully leads us and comes after us when we go astray. He lays down his life for the sheep and no one will snatch them from him and he will raise them on the last day because they have been given to him by the father who is greater than anyone. So if you've entrusted your soul to the faithful shepherd, you are cared for, you are secure, and you will be kept. What's, what's your responsibility now? Believe it and live in light of it brings us to the third application, which is this, trust the promises of God. Walk by faith in trusting the promises of God. 
Now, these people had no idea the timeline of this. They had no idea when this was going to happen. And this seems pretty impossible. I mean, when you see the Assyrian army, you see the Babylonian army, and you see them wipe all of your whole nation out, it does not seem very likely that this is going to come true. Certainly not soon. And it wasn't soon. It was 70 years. But God remained faithful to his promise. He remained faithful to his promise long after everyone that came out of exile had died and was decomposing in the dirt when he sent his son into this world at the right time to break through the barriers of sin and to lead his people in triumph from the power of sin and Satan. And, and perhaps all of us will be decomposed in the dirt and it'll be 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years from now before Christ returns. Does that nullify the promises he's made? Does that make them less real? Does that make them less relevant to us? Does that mean we have to have less faith in them because we might not see them in our, in our lives or because they might happen in a way that we don't think that they should happen in or expect them to happen in? We should live in this life looking forward. We should not be at home here and not hope in this life. Our hope is in the promises of God which never fail and are always kept Though we can't see how they will be kept or in what way they will be kept, and it seems unlikely to us, God is faithful to his word, and he has given us great promises to hope in and trust in while we sojourn in this life of difficulty, sorrow, and pain. And guess what? One day it'll be over. And I promise you, when we step into eternity, whether through him coming or through us dying, we will see all of these promises realized. Now, I for one, right? The, the, what's that? Standing on the promises, right? Standing, standing. It's like, I want to be able to go and stand before him, whether I die or whether he comes, and stand before him and say, I failed a lot. I wandered but I trusted your promises and I've trusted you to shepherd me. And that's my only hope. You see how that has substance? You see how that stands in contrast to the wine and strong drink, everything's fine. It's actually got legs because it's rooted and grounded in God and his character, and it's driving us back to him. It's calling us back to him. It's calling us to find refuge in him. It's calling us to walk by faith in his shepherding care, and it's calling us to walk by faith in the promises that he has made. And the manner and timing of God keeping his promises is not for us to determine, is not for us to know, it is our lot to trust God and leave the details to him, to walk in faithfulness all the days of our lives and leave the details to him, knowing that he is the one who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine because he has said it, he will surely do it. So the question for all of us this morning is this, am I following the shepherd king or am I following someone or something else? Am I trusting in him or am I trusting in myself? Do I seek his ways or my own ways? Am I influenced by what he says or by what others say or what the culture says? Will I follow him when others don't? 
you will either trust the promises of God, the shepherd king, or the promises of something or someone else. But only his bring life, and only his are true. Let's pray.